Well, good morning, Judson. I want to remind you of a couple of things as we get started. One is that I want to make sure you stop by in our gathering space, our lobby out there, and make sure you send Brad and Tiffany Carr off uh, to Oklahoma, their next steps. Well, we have a card uh, that you can write out there and put it in a basket so that you can share a memory with them. And then next week, we'll be having a very short business meeting in this service uh, where we've presented Patton McClendon to be our next director of student ministries here, and we'll be voting on that. And I have some other good news for you this morning. I want to invite our guys to come on in. They're going to come down. We've got something to hand out to you this morning. And I wonder if anybody might know what we might celebrate with the handing out of candy. Oh, there's somebody sharp in the house today. Virginia, come on. Another hundred grand has been applied against the debt, all right? Thank you. I'm not going to eat it right now, but maybe if I get hungry, right? So, so let, me, let me tell you about this for just a second. We asked you guys uh, to be prayerfully mindful of us uh, paying off our debt. We want to do that. We feel like God's called us to do it. And we have $7.2 million in, in building debt left, but that's not actually true anymore because I actually could hand out four of these to each of you today because in the last five months, we've paid off $400,000 in that debt, and praise the Lord for that. Amen? Yeah. So what that means is that some of you were giving to that, and I'm grateful for that, and we had a gift come in for that too, and we paid down some principal as we went. And so thank you for your faithfulness to do that. We really believe that in the days ahead, God wants us to financially reposition the church so that we can do something with all that money that we're spending towards debt. We think that we can use that in the kingdom here and now. Now, here's the thing I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to at least wait till the offering before you start popping these and eating them. I mean, you know, am I, don't make it look like I'm that boring, but I've got one up here. If I start boring myself, I may just eat it, eat it myself, right? Uh, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to do that. We're excited about what God is doing in that. So make sure you get one of these candy bars. Uh, take one for a friend. We're celebrating what God... In fact, can we just take a moment as we start... And they're still passing. Could we just praise the Lord for that in prayer this morning and thank him for that? Yeah, we can clap too. It's okay. We can clap too. But, but let, let's just praise the Lord for just a second. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. And we realize that we didn't accomplish anything today. You accomplished something through us because you gave to people who gave back to you. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we're humble about it this morning because we realize we can't do this on our own. And so we look to you and ask you, Lord, to do what only you can do and help us continue to reposition our church financially. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're continuing our series called Hashtag Blessed. And I think it's important for us to be reminded that each of these verses that make up what's called the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew, you can't take them apart. They have to be read in the whole because they build upon one another and that's when they make sense for us. When Jesus gave us what he called the Sermon on the Mount, what he wasn't trying to do is give you a moral code that you needed to live by. He wasn't trying to give a set of rules that we needed to live by because you can't do it. A apart from Jesus Christ changing your life from the inside out, this is just frustrating. It's actually maddening because these things don't just occur naturally in our lives. They're not just waiting to be discovered and mined out. That's something that's foreign to who we are. And God has to do something in and through our lives. Uh, what we begin to see, though, is that as we go to the Lord Jesus Christ and die to ourselves and give our lives to Christ, what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to change us from the inside out. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. 
We're going to be there in verse 1 again. And I think it's important for us to actually read all of these verses, even though we're only looking at one at a time, because the context does help us as we build upon uh, one, one message to the next. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you uh, to make sure that you stop by the Next Step Center. We'd be happy to give you a Bible. And the scriptures will be on the screen behind me as we start. Uh, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last week we learned that this word blessed really means to be happy. It's variously translated but it means to be happy. And we live in a time when people are using that hashtag, and that's kind of why the series is a play on words like that. And it was funny because people, we talked about this last week, about people will take a picture of themselves out to, outside and throw up the hashtag blessed or something like that. And I was listening to a podcast this week, a, a sporting podcast, and this guy was talking about how he'd been able to be outside recently and do all of these things. And the co-host of the podcast said with a chuckle, hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> and everybody kind of laughed, right? Is that really what it means? Is that the best that we can do is to say that we're hashtag blessed and we don't really understand what it means to be happy? And I think a lot of us really are wanting happiness, but Jesus is saying that there's a way to happiness and it's absolutely unconventional because its path to happiness defies all the logic that you could ever think about. The pathway to happiness is not logical. As we saw last week, Jesus started by saying happiness begins when we empty ourselves. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who don't rely on themselves anymore, those who don't uh, live pridefully before the Lord anymore, those who decide that they're not going to be self-assured in their lives. And these words of Jesus say that if you're going to be happy, you've got to empty yourself of these things. You're not going to find true happiness as long as those things are in your lives. Emptying ourselves allow Christ then to set up his character in our lives. And once we empty ourselves of these things, the next logical step then is what we find in verse 4. I want you to look at it again with me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, if you take that on face value, that seems like an impossibility, doesn't it? How could a person be blessed, happy, if they're mourning? Well, the word Jesus used for mourn is not a typo. It wasn't a mistake. It's not something that just slipped in and he misspoke or wish he had said something differently. The word literally means to grieve to be sad. And probably the thing that comes to your mind and my mind as I think about what it means to grieve over something, it normally centers around death. Normally I think about grieving a loved one who is dying or has lost right their life. And, and I think about that process because we mourn what's never going to be again. We mourn the sickness that they're in. But I've had the experience too of being around people who were mourning death, but who were also happy. Because they'd seen their loved one go through a protracted illness and they knew their loved one was in the arms of Jesus. And so they were happy that that ordeal was over. 
How could it be that we could mourn and yet be happy? With that emotion in mind of someone being mournful and happy, I want us to go back to this idea of death for a second. Because if we think about how the average American tries to be happy, what are they really trying to avoid? Death. All the time. Greatest fear that we have. And it's a funny thing because if you ask the average American how they could be happy, they'd say longer life, live healthy, have more money, different job, be able to take another vacation, be able to get away from it all. All of those things might come to mind as they say to you how they're trying to be happy. In fact, one of the things that I see recently, I've seen recently is this slogan, live, laugh, love, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's this idea that happiness is external. And Jesus says that happiness isn't external at all. It comes from within. And the pathways may be not how you would think it would be. When we think about the external, we agree that those things provide a measure of happiness, don't we? If you get to take a vacation, you probably are a little happier than you were if you were sitting in the office. Unless you have small children. Then you take a vacation and you just get to live your life somewhere else in a hotel room. It's just it's a funny thing how that works, isn't it? Right? But but you understand what I'm saying here. It does provide a measure of happiness, doesn't it? But the thing about it is, vacations end and you have to go back to work. And all jobs, no matter if you're in this job or you get another job, all jobs have trials and tribulations and setbacks and things you have to overcome. If it wasn't work, they'd call it play. But that's how it is, isn't it? And and so if you're waiting on external things to make you happy, it's not going to work. Well... The sad part is, though, I think a lot of us live in that mentality all the time. We know that Jesus is the pathway to happiness, but we still try to fill up our lives the exact same way that people who are lost try to fill up their lives. If I could just get more, if I could just have this experience, and we think that the outside in is the way to be happy, but it's not true. So what is it that we're supposed to mourn when we think about death and and being comforted and, and all of these things? Many of us mourn the world that we live in. The present condition of the world causes us to mourn. We look at the problems of the day and we don't understand how we got in this mess and we don't see our politicians able to help us get out of that and we really mourn the situation that's here. Some of us mourn the fact that society has so many ill things going on in it. The societal ills break our heart. We see people abused and used all the time, and it breaks our hearts because we don't know how people could treat one another that way. And I'll say this, it should break our hearts. We should mourn those things, and Christians should be at the forefront. That, that, that should be at the forefront of our minds, making sure that justice is there and making sure that people are always protected, never abused, all of those things. I often think about that when I think of the man named William Wilberforce, who worked tirelessly to end slavery in Britain. It broke his heart. He mourned it, and he did something about it. Some of us pine for times gone by, and we believe that the days of old were so much better, and we mourn the loss of what that is. And we really believe if we could get back to that time in our life, that, that one time in the past where things hadn't changed, life would just be so much better, and we pine for it, and we yearn for it, we long for a simpler time, and we wish that we could just go back. But you know, that's dangerous. And there's a spiritual prohibition against doing it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10 says, 
Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask about this. It's dangerous on so many levels to do it. Because when you look back and you create a reality, because that's what you're doing with a memory, you're creating a reality that didn't exist. Life wasn't always better. Life had its ups and downs. And when you try to live that way, what you're doing is ignoring the circumstances and people God's placed in your life right now and just saying not interested. So what do you think Jesus meant when he said that blessed would be those who mourn and they would be comforted? I think Jesus was talking about the issue that he saw in people's lives and it's the fundamental issue that all of us struggle with. It's our sin, our wickedness, the depravity of our own souls. Several times in the scripture, we're told that Jesus looked out at crowds, maybe just like this, and his heart was moved because he saw them wandering aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost, and it broke his heart because he understood the fundamental reality of every one of those persons' lives was that they were lost because of their own wickedness and sin sickness. One of the great modern heresies that we live with today concerns sin. People say that we shouldn't be concerned about it, that it's no big deal, and it's a lie. Any person who would tell you that sin isn't a big deal doesn't know Jesus. Sin was a big enough deal that that perfect life was sacrificed. We just sang it. It was a big enough deal that he came not to let you sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus. And that's where the heresy kind of gets in is I can just live my life however I want to, but I know Jesus, he knows me, we're all good. I just sprinkle a little bit of that in and everything is okay. It doesn't work. When you mourn your sin, you're realizing that something has to die. It's when we determine that we're not going to rely on ourselves anymore. We're going to rely on God fully. And these lives that we've built are just a facade of success and power and greatness. We know that they're nothing more than a shadow because we realize what we do on our own is nothing. When a person begins to mourn that, they're on the pathway to righteousness. What happens is is that God saw Sin is the fundamental issue of your life and my life, and he didn't leave us alone. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place, taking our sin, our shame. And I think whoever coined the phrase that grace was free, but it wasn't cheap, got it exactly right. It is free to us, but it wasn't cheap. It costs something. And when we come to Jesus, there's a mourning process that must take place. As we stare, all that we have built We look at our lives and all that we have built and all the things that we hold precious and dear and we realize, just like the Apostle Paul did, that all of that stuff has to die, that it's garbage. He said it in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I lived my life, I built my life on all of these things that I thought were so important. But when I came to Jesus Christ, they're trash. All of that stuff is trash. It's rubbish. It doesn't get me anywhere. The only thing that matters is Jesus Christ in my life. I heard Rosario Butterfield quoted as saying that when you come to Christ, it costs you something. It's painful because something has to die. There's a mourning process for the life you once loved and lived because all the things that you valued and held dear in your life, they have to be laid down. And the process of mourning begins. When we stare our sin in the face, 
it causes us to realize the depth of our own depravity. I was in Pastor Jack's office the other day, and uh, he looked at me and said, well, bless your black little wicked heart. And he said it tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. There's wickedness. Wickedness. In all of us, our flesh wars against the Spirit. Our flesh wants to gratify itself. Our flesh wants to be important. We want to take advantage of people. We would never say that, but that's what we want to do. We're selfish at the core. And that has to die every day. As we look at our hearts and our intentions, it causes us to mourn. It causes us to grieve. It hurts us in the core of who we are. It rattles us. Because as the Christian, this is something that we experience every time the Holy Spirit wants to deal with us about sin. As the Holy Spirit gets close to us and begins to speak, he exposes the recesses of our character that we try so hard to keep out of the limelight. We don't want anyone to know it. We don't want our best friends to know it. We don't want anyone to see that part of us. And the Holy Spirit comes in and he begins to speak to us about that and say, that can't stay. It won't work. He begins to mold us into the image of Christ. I've got to be honest. I don't know how it is in your life. But in my life, that's a hard process because I find a lot of times I'm not very pliable to be molded. I don't want it. I don't want the Holy Spirit to mold me. I want to stay stubborn. I don't want him to come in and speak about that. I want to hide it. My flesh cries out at all points for autonomy and freedom and saying, just leave me alone. I can't take any more of this. Don't speak to me about that. I don't want it. I think that's the scariest spot to be in as a Christian, isn't it? I fear it when the Holy Spirit shows up. I run from it. I repress it because I don't want that scrutiny because at my core, I don't want to deal with any of this. I often think that I'm happier on my own not dealing with the issues, but that's not the truth. I've never gone through a season of cleansing or repentance, and you haven't either, where God didn't swoop in and comfort you and lift you up. And yet I find myself telling me, well, my sin's not really that big of a deal. It's, you know, there are other things that people do that's a much bigger deal. Well, bless your wicked little heart. I'm not that bad. I mean, I've changed so much, Lord. Why, why can't you just leave me alone? Why, why do we have to keep doing this over and over again? And I'll tell you this. When you've experienced the freedom that comes from confession, you know it. There's a weight that's taken off you, and there's a freedom that makes you never want to go back to that. And what we find is the thing we're scared the most of, the Holy Spirit dealing with us, is the thing we need to run into all the time and mourn who we are and where we are and mourn the wickedness that still tries to invade our bodies and mourn those things where we still haven't given the Holy Spirit full control and just say to him, here I am, I'm on the altar, take it, please. There's no comfort for our souls on our own. Nothing we can do will ever salve, salve our consciences enough to make us feel better about it. And the truth of it is, when we're broken over our sin, if we would be broken over it, God begins to comfort us, and there is a comfort that he gives that cannot be experienced any other way. 
when God shows up and comforts a man or a woman, it's a supernatural thing. So as we look at the fears and failures that play our lives, what we have to remember is that God isn't looking at those things going, well, good job. Way to go. You made the bed. Lie in it. Get yourself out of this mess. You're such a disappointment. No. As we begin to mourn those things in our lives that are grieving the Spirit, as God is beginning to speak to us about those things, God swoops in and begins to comfort our hearts and move in our lives. He looks at us and he begins to provide the healing that we need for our souls. See, he is both the reason for the mourning and the comfort. When you see the Lord Jesus Christ up on the cross, he's the reason for the mourning. Our sin, our shame put him there. But he's the reason for the comfort. God didn't leave us alone in our sins. He loved us enough that he sent his son to die on the cross in our place. And so I wonder this morning if maybe the reason that we can't find true happiness might be because we're at a place where we're not mourning our sin. Why wouldn't we mourn our sin? I think there's four reasons for us to think about this morning. The first is this. You've never become poor in spirit. Remember, it's logical progression here. The poor in spirit, they empty themselves out so that Jesus can take up residence. And if you've never done that, then you've never truly mourned your sin. If you don't become poor in spirit, that's like trying to have your life and add Jesus to it. It just doesn't work that way. And what he says to us is, come, everybody who's weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you the rest that you need. But what he, what he says is that you have to empty yourself first, become poor in spirit, and then you begin the process of mourning. It's an exchange of that life that leads to freedom. And if you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, that's the first step on the way to happiness. As we said last week, it starts when we look at him and say, I am nothing on my own, I need you. I need you to save me. If you've never done that, do it today. Second reason, maybe we have been poor in spirit. We know what it means to be a Christ follower. We've been saved from our sins. But the second reason might be that we've just grown cold to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament uses some imagery for us to remind us of what that looks like. It's called quenching the Holy Spirit. When you quench something, it means to put it out, right? You'd add water to it. If something was on fire and you quenched it or a piece of metal was hot and you quenched it, you dip it. You add water to it. It takes away the heat. If we're living a life that is quenching the Holy Spirit, well, what does that look like? It looks like when the Holy Spirit begins to speak into your life and my life and he says, you know, this, this will not do. And we say, I know, but... I'm not interested in dealing with that right now. or I don't want to hear it. I'm not ready to give that up. And when we do that, we lose out on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And what begins to happen is that God's speaking to us about things that are issues in our life that we've refused to put on the altar. They need to die. And he's saying, no, you've got this on life support still. And as long as you want to keep it pumped up, I, I don't have any part of it. I can't get in there and, and make you see this. And if we quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you'll never be happy. It just doesn't work. It could be that we're too busy to hear the Holy Spirit. Number three, we're too busy. I think about this all the time. Somebody gave me this picture in my mind some, some years ago. 
of every morning that when I wake up, it's as if Jesus is sitting in the chair in my den saying, hey, what are we doing today? And some days we just blow right by that. We're not doing anything today. I don't have time for this. I've got to go play golf. I've got to go do some things. I really have to go to work. I've got all this stuff. I want to do what I want to do. I don't have time for you today. Or we come before him and we say, hey, in the next two or three minutes, could you give me all the character formation that I need? And he goes, that that doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen like that. This is your life we're talking about. And if there's no room for him there, what do we expect? We have to stop evaluating ourselves and go before the Lord and really ask one of the hardest questions. God? Holy Spirit, Christ, how are we right now? Like, really? David did it in the Old Testament. Search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. That's a bold prayer. You can't make that prayer when you're so busy that you don't have time to listen if you were to speak. Final reason, number four, we forget the seriousness of sin. I find this to be the truth for those of us who are believers. The further you get away from the old life, the lost life that you used to live, the more it is that we can kind of whitewash our own sin. That's not really that big a deal. I mean, I I didn't kill anybody. Well, good for you. Right? I'm not that bad. Well, what's that bad? One sin put Jesus on the cross. Is lying worse than murder? Is it? I mean, is that, is that how we say, well, I mean, well, I mean, and what we begin to do is we begin to say, Lord, I, I, I don't think that's that big a deal. I'm going to take my cue from the culture and I'll just celebrate the things that break your heart. I'll celebrate selfishness and pride and self-reliance and greed and all of those things because I'm, I'm not living an immoral life exactly. We don't realize that God's saying it's the inner recesses of your life that the Holy Spirit is trying to blow through this temple of your body and clean it out. Last year, I found myself to be out of sorts. I was struggling. It was just like it was a season. And I was struggling with an attitude, and it had affected a relationship that I had. And I began to feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me about this, you know. But it was one of those things like, I mean, it's not that big a deal. I don't want to deal with this. I sure don't want to do it. But the Holy Spirit began speaking and kept speaking. It was like it was not going away, right? Kind of like this moment of that's on life support. It needs to die. But then the rationalization started. Well, but if I go say what I feel like you're asking me to say to restore this relationship, if I admit my failure... God, what, what are they going to think about me? I mean, what, what are they going to say when I say, man, I'm sorry that our relationship has been this way? And the funny thing about that is, right, when we're worrying about relationships is that those people normally already know that the relationship is that way. You, you like walking up and going, hey, we have a problem. They're like, no kidding, really. But we lie to ourselves, don't we? I, I just can't do it. I don't want to do it. And, and you go through these machinations, right? And, and here's the problem. In my head, I know that this is what I need to do. Do you have that experience? You know what you need to do, but my heart isn't willing. 
right? I know that it's here. The knowledge is there. But the thing that places it in my heart, that puts my feet in motion, it wasn't willing. What's funny is that you live with that long enough and, and you get that feeling, don't you? Do you know that feeling of wanting to be sick? It's nauseating. When you're living for the Lord and the Holy Spirit sets up on it, it can be nauseating because you know it's not right and it's not going to be dealt with any other way. You're going to have to let head and heart follow in the same direction. It's funny, isn't it? As soon as you take the step to do the right thing, you've mourned the process, all of a sudden God begins to comfort us immediately. The attitude begins to change. Relationship was restored. Why? Because you're following through with what God's saying. He's saying this is serious in your life and we're not moving forward until we get this right. When you start to mourn your sin, there is a grieving process. And even for believers, there are seasons where we go back and we mourn again, something that the Holy Spirit has revealed in our lives. And we have to lay it all on the altar that just says, I'm not going to pick this up and take it with me. I'm laying it here. It has to die. I think when Jesus said, take your cross and follow me, he wasn't kidding. He was really saying what needs to die is you. Could you be bold enough this morning to say, you know what, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm not going to pretend everything's right, God's speaking to me. I'm not going to do that. Would you be bold enough this morning to pray like David and say, search me and try me, to say to the Lord, I've come to do business here And as you speak, you have my attention. It's not my agenda, Lord, but it's yours. And instead of hiding from the molding process, that you might just pray, Lord, make me pliable this morning. Change my heart. I believe if we would do that, what we would find is right on the top of that hill that we just can't see over, where we're afraid that if we start mourning, is the right of our lives as Jesus begins to comfort us and change us into the image of who we're supposed to be. That's him. And it starts from the inside out. I'm going to ask you to do something right now that we don't do very often. I think we're afraid of the silence. We're never quiet anymore. I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles, put your phones down, get everything out of your lap, and bow your heads and close your eyes and just sit for a minute. Could it be this morning that you're in the building 
And your greatest need is Jesus Christ. And you have some questions about whether or not if you died today, you'd spend eternity in heaven or hell. If that's where you're at, if, 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 you're, if you could just be that bold this morning, I want to pray for you. If you just say, I, I don't know. I don't know about my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to ask you just in a step of faith just to slip your hand up in the air and keep it there so I can see you. Just slip your hand up and say, I just don't know. I'm not sure if I die today, I'd spend eternity with Jesus. Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody? You just say, that's where I'm at. So for those that raise their hand, the way to happiness starts with changing directions. And it's really simple. Would you just pray quietly in your seat? You don't have to say it out loud to the Lord. Save me. Forgive me of my sin. And save me. I believe you are the Christ. Son of the living God. Who died in my place. On the cross that should have been mine. That you were buried. And rose again. Save me. The scripture says that all who call on the name of the Lord are saved. And if you've done that. God has changed your heart and started this process. If that just happened for you, the enemy will tell you, well, it's no big deal, don't tell anybody, keep it quiet. But Jesus says differently. He says, confess me before men and I'll confess you before men. My Father who's in heaven, sorry. And if we don't confess him, he won't confess us before the Father. You need to tell somebody. You can do that at the end of our service as we sing by coming down and taking my hand. And just tell me, I've given my life to Christ. It could be that you're a believer this morning. And God's trying to do business. And maybe your prayer is, Lord, make me pliable. So that you can form me. And shape me. And if that's where you're at this morning, I want you to raise your hand. So that I can pray for you. Yep, anybody else? Raise your hands. Anybody else who just says, I need to mourn something in my life right now, Pastor? Anybody else? Amen. Father, for those of us who have raised our hands, we're coming to you saying, we need the Holy Spirit to speak. Change our lives. Speak in our hearts. Fashion us into the image of Jesus Christ. Start on the inside and move out. And we ask this in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.